This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit SalemPresWS.org. That's SalemPresWS.org. We believe preaching is best when experience is part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Usually we meet Sunday evenings in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. We hope to return to that soon. And as you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll come with us when we can gather in person. Yeah. Hey, everyone. If I haven't met you, I'm John Bourgeois. And like Ben said, I'm the RUF campus minister at Wake Forest. Um, It is good to be with you all tonight. I think it's I'm going to be preaching from Genesis 21 verses 1 through 7. So if you have a Bible or a phone, you want to turn there. And while you're turning there, I think um, this is part of this is comical to me. This is beautiful. But the comical part is that Salem Prez is the most anti-mega church, multi-service church I know and the beauty of the way you gather and here we are tonight four services and streaming online so I think there's there's deep beautiful irony in that um, and also as pastors I'm sure Ben would agree with this I never once wanted to be a televangelist and that's what's happening and also never really had any desire to be a street preacher but that's happening too so all these things are happening in in yeah we got paper cups so it's not We haven't gone all whole hog on that. All right. Um, So I'm going to read Genesis 21, verses 1 through 7 for us. This is God's word for us tonight. It is completely true, and he gives it to us in love. The Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said... Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this time together. And pray now that you would help us. Lord, would you show us Jesus? Would you speak through your word by your spirit that you would get all the glory? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Can you all hear me back there? Okay. So I remember um, first time I read Little Little Red Riding Hood to my kids. We lived in Richmond, and we were on a walk in our neighborhood, and a neighbor was giving away this big pile of children's books, and one of them was Little Red Riding Hood, so we brought it home, and I think my oldest might have been four at the time, and I read Little Red Riding to him, but this story was different than the one I remembered. Um, It went like this. Little Red went to her grandmother, and then she met the wolf in the woods, and the wolf told her to pick flowers for grandma, and then the wolf snuck ahead, and then Little Red Riding arrived at grandma's cabin and they did the what big eyes what big ears what big mouth you have teeth you have and then little red riding gets scared in this version and then right then the woodsman runs in 
And then they chase the, chase the wolf together out into the woods. They have tea together. Yay, the wolf is gone. This is not the story I remember. And I don't think I would be happy if I was in this story because I'm a little girl and I've got to walk back through those woods to my parents' house and we just scared a wolf and shamed him. And now he's waiting for me in the woods, right? This is not the story I remember. And I was thinking about this and reading about this. There's over a hundred different versions of Little Red Riding Hood. So lots of liberty with this story. The, the story I remember was Little Red Riding Hood walking to her grandmother's house. She meets the wolf in the forest. The wolf goes ahead of her and eats grandma. And then when she arrives, they do the what big eyes, what big ears, what big teeth you have. Wolf unveils himself. He then eats Little Red Riding Hood. He's so full, he falls asleep. Then the neighbor woodsman comes in. Here's the screams of grandma and Little Red from the inside of the wolf's belly. Is this a story y'all heard? And then cuts the wolf open, takes out, rescues grandmother, rescues Little Red Riding Hood, fills the belly of the wolf with rocks, sews it up. The wolf wakes up, he's so thirsty, he goes down to the river and drinks, and because of the rocks in his stomach, he sinks to the bottom of the river and he dies. That's a great story. It's a great story. And it's a great story, it's a happy ending, because there's real sadness, because the wolf ate grandma and Little Red Riding Hood. That's very, very sad. There's real sadness, but there's also real joy because they're rescued and the wolf is dead. He's not lurking in the woods. He's dead at the bottom of the river. So what's going on here? Why do we have these, these different versions of these stories? Well, our children's stories have been, have been neutered and we've been taught to think that real joy is possible without engaging the real sorrows of this life. And I think this is extremely important because the stories that we tell and we listen to shape our imaginations and our imaginations shape how we live and the story that we're given here in genesis 21 we receive a microcosm of the true story of the world so what is this true story this is my outline for tonight the reality of sadness the scandal of god's promise and the interruption of joy so first the reality of sadness i want to remind you the story of abraham we first meet abraham at the end of genesis 11 and we meet him at this dead end of a family. There's no children. They've forgotten who God is. They've forgotten what it feels like to say God's name. He's become a stranger to God's promise and a stranger to joy. And then at the beginning of chapter 12, he receives the call of God. And we see that the call of God means that what felt like a dead end actually wasn't. And then Genesis 12, the Lord makes these promises to Abraham when he's 70 years old. And he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will bless the world through you. And then in Genesis 15, he tells, God tells Abraham, I will make your offspring more numerous than the stars in the sky. And then when Abraham's 99 in Genesis 17, he says, I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. And in the chapters in between in Genesis, in the chapters that follow, they, they follow his sometimes stumbling, sometimes rebellious, sometimes forgetful, sometimes faithful life. And 29 years after God's first promise to him, Abraham is 99, Sarah is 89. She's visited by an angel who tells her that she will conceive and she'll bear a son. And then at 100 years old, Sarah's 90, she gives birth to the son. Sarah was barren for 90 years, 30 of which she was living with the promise that God would give her children, 30 years of waiting. Can you imagine what this would be like? I don't think I can imagine what, I'm 35, I can't imagine what this would be like. Saying to yourself, 
but God has said that I'm going to have a kid and that through me, he is going to, the, going to bless the world. This is the promise that God made to Sarah. And before we get to the joy of this passage, we really have to acknowledge the sadness. This is something that all the commentators draw out and draw our attention to, is that the joy of this passage is deeply connected to a lifetime of barrenness. And y'all, we are not very good at being sad. We spend so much time, so much energy avoiding sadness, avoiding the pain of loss. Philosopher Charles Taylor wrote that Western society's highest goal is to prevent suffering. And now, as we're experiencing suffering on a global level, this great shared reality of the pandemic, we're all facing sadness. We all have sorrow. In the words of Ryan Adams, all sorrow could be summed up as I'm fractured from the fall and I want to go home. That's what we all feel right now. Like this, the pandemic, all of its fracturing effects, I just, I just want to go home. And not only that, right, the, the recent murders of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and Rashard Brooks and others, they're revealing the fracture of racial injustice in our country and we can lament with Ryan Adams, I just want to go home. The brokenness of this world, I'm fractured from the fall, I just want to go home. Why? Why is it so hard for us to let ourselves be sad? Why is it so hard for us to engage with this emotion? Instead, we, we run to anger or we run to distraction, but actually engaging in the sadness of our own lives is so difficult. And why do we need to do this? Why do we need to actually engage with the sorrows of our life? And the reality is that there is no joy, there is no true joy without lament. There's no true joy without true lament. The, the Pixar film Inside Out deals with this so well. Um, the director, Pete Docter, has said in interviews that when they were making this movie in the earliest versions of the script, they had joy connected to fear. They paired them together, and he said um, that, they, that he thought as a director that the way that we experience joy is we have to deal with our fear. We have to deal properly with fear, and that fear was the issue, that fear is the thing that prevents us from real joy. As they worked on it, they discovered that sadness must be central to the film. He said in an interview, there are so many books on how to be happy and what you need for happiness, and you want that for your kid too. We literally tell our children, don't be sad, and we're wrong. Friends, we need sadness. We need to experience sadness to let ourselves grieve, to lament in order to experience joy. I was once at a a Christian marriage conference that was being led by a fairly prominent uh, Christian psych psychologist and he was talking about this, talking about this relationship between sorrow and joy and he said they're the holiest emotions and and someone raised their hand and asked and said okay as a counselor as a as a psychologist when you get oh then he talked about how much time we spend avoiding sadness like how much of our energy goes towards avoiding sadness and someone raised their hand and said well what happens as a counselor when you get somebody to be sad in your office and he responded well then my job is done so much of his work as a counselor is just getting people to the point where they're actually sad they can actually be honest about the sadness in their own lives and in our passage Sarah's joy is connected to her deep sadness and friends the same is true for our lives we cannot have joy without experiencing sadness. 
And your sadness is real. The sadness of your neighbors is real. And until you lament, you will not be open to the scandal of God's promise. Because God's promise is, and we see here, is ridiculous, scandalous. To a 60-year-old woman, he says, you are going to have a baby, and through that baby, I will make everything that is sad in the world come untrue. And when she's 90, when she's 90, she gives birth to this baby. And the birth of this child is the fulfillment of all of the promises. It is the resolution of all of her anguish. If you've got your Bible open, look at verse 1. It says, The Lord did as he said, as he had promised. There's no natural process here. Those have failed. The joy comes through God's promise. It is only by his grace. And the focus here is not on the announcement of the promise, the announcement of the birth by promise, but the kept promise. This kept promise by God to this old couple. In Romans 4, 17, Paul, who's writing about the birth of Isaac, he connects the scandal of this promise to three other things. The creation of the world out of nothing, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and justification by grace through faith. Creation, resurrection, and justification are all affirmations of this same reality. They point to this peculiar power of God to evoke new life by his grace. Not out of life potential, but out of a hopeless situation. And friends, this is the scandal of God's promise. It's based entirely on him and his good pleasure and nothing that he sees in us. He doesn't offer you joy because of some potential that he sees in you and he's waiting for you to live up to it. Eternal life in Jesus isn't for those who show promise. The scandal of God's promise is that he brings it to bear in situations where there is no foundation of hope. Look at Sarah. She's 90 years old. God's promise to her is laughable. But God keeps his promises. And this drives us away from ourselves and to God who is always found faithful. And this miracle, and this is a miraculous birth, this miracle is not a violation of the natural order, but it's a concrete assertion that God is faithful to his promises. And the scandal of his promise leads to an interruption of joy. Laughter is an interruption. Think about how it comes out of you when you're surprised by your own laughter. It's an, it's an eruption of gladness. This made me think of the laughter song in Mary Poppins, which is this wonderful exploration of the causes and types of laughter. If you don't know it, you need to go watch it. That's your homework. Go watch Mary Poppins. And the word for laughter is in this passage five times. In these seven verses, the name Isaac, the name Isaac means he laughs. And then in verse six, Sarah proclaims that God has made laughter over me. By the power of his word, God has broken the grip of death and hopelessness and barrenness. And the response is laughter. In John 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples about what's going to happen after he dies and he's raised and, and he ascends to heaven. And he tells them that babies, that new life, that babies, new birth, babies are the sign and symbol and expression of joy. And laughter is the biblical way of receiving a newness which cannot be explained. And here in Genesis 21, we have laughter over a baby. Unexplainable newness and joy. Sarah laughs. Her barrenness has now become ludicrous. 
In John 16, as Jesus is preparing his disciples for the cross, he says to them, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. William Temple, who is a 20th century bishop in the Church of England wrote, it is not only that joy will take the place of sorrow, but that sorrow itself becomes the joy. The cross is not for Christians a stumbling block which the resurrection has removed. It's not a defeat of which the effect has been canceled by subsequent victory. The cross is itself the triumph. What was the devil's worst has become God's best. What was the devil's worst? The murder of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the promised seed of Sarah, becomes God's best. In Christ, on the cross, Jesus, he forgives our sins, he paid our debt, and through his cross and his resurrection, he keeps the promise that he made to Sarah. So how do we apply this? How does this intersect with our lives? Well, I want to ask you a question. Ask yourself this question. How are you with other people's sadness? How are you with other people's sadness? When other people are sad, does, does that make you uncomfortable? Do others feel safe being sad around you? And if you don't know the answer to this, ask somebody that you trust and you know loves you. Ask them, um, am I safe with other people's sadness? Can people be sad around you? Are you safe to be sad around? And for yourself, how are you with your own sadness? Can you go there? Or do you do everything in your power to avoid being sad? And friends, here's the thing. It's only as you engage with the real sorrows of your life that you will be able to love your neighbor in their sadness. It's only as you engage with the real sadness of your life that you will unlock the potential for true joy. And as I've talked with other pastors during the pandemic and we're seeing how hard it is right now for people to really engage with their sadness, myself included, how difficult this is. I mean, some of us are falling into self-reliance and overworking. A lot of folks are working crazy hours and relying on themselves. Some of us are just binging on social media and news and Netflix, not turning to God. And in this break from our past busyness, some of us with more time aren't using it to turn to God, but rather diving deeper into distraction. We're not taking our pain to Jesus. We don't know how to lament. Some of us think it's wrong to feel sad. And so we kick the dog, we take out our pain in others, so in Travis this, I've just been yelling all the time. I don't, I don't know, like I yell at my kids and then I apologize in a yell to my kids. It's just, I don't know what's going on. It's just, I don't know. And if not that, like if it's not coming out there, it's coming out in other self-destructive behaviors. Like the, the stats on alcohol purchasing and porn use are way up. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus offers you a way into and through your pain and sadness. You don't have to avoid it. You don't have to stuff it down. You don't have to medicate it or take it out on others. But the God of the universe invites you to join him in his grief over the brokenness of the world. He invites you to join the spirit and it's groaning and he invites you to join Jesus in his tears. And it's only as you enter your sorrows and take them through the true story of Jesus' death and resurrection that he will transform them into joy. Friends, we've got to lament and take it to the cross to submit our sadness to Jesus 
and wait for Jesus to bring resurrection. Look at Sarah. Sarah waited 30 years, watching all of her friends become mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers. And then the best thing that would ever happen to her happened. Isaac, the promised child, the one whom through God would save the world was born. And the difference between you and Sarah is that the best thing that will ever happen to you has already happened to you in Jesus Christ. He is the promised child who Isaac points to. Isaac was born so that Jesus Christ would be born. Jesus is a direct descendant of this boy. And he was born to die for you, to take your sadness and your sin into himself on the cross so that in his resurrection, he might give you the inexpressible joy of new life. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is both the saddest and most joyous event in human history. His death and resurrection are the true story of the world. And it's only as we submit our real sadness to his that he will grant us the real joy that we long for. Um, there's a woman named Bobette Buster who was a consultant to Pixar on Toy Story 3, and she gave a talk at a Q Ideas conference a handful of years ago called The Arc of Storytelling. And in that talk, she asked the question, what is, what's the real issue of storytelling? What's going on when we tell stories? And she, she tells the story of a man named Bruno Bettelheim, who was a leading child therapist at the University of Chicago, and he was a, a survivor of the Holocaust, and he wrote a book called The Uses of Enchantment. And what he discovered in his research was that the children in the death camps who had been read the Brothers Grimm fairy tales, these children had been taught that someday you may be thrown into an oven. Someday a wolf may come to your door, but guess what? There is an unstoppable force in the universe that is there to support you. And if you will keep going, you will discover the faith and the courage to go on. Y'all, this is why neutered Little Red Riding Hood is so dangerous, because it isn't real. Friends, we need to tell ourselves and tell each other true stories, the true story. And that's what we have in the Bible. The birth of Isaac points us to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is where we see the true reality of the world. That the world is in bondage to sin and is filled with sorrow and anguish but that in Jesus Christ, there is new creation. And that in him, we will one day share fully in his resurrection. And that joy that we experience now is just a foretaste of the day when Jesus will return and we will enter into that new joy, an eternal joy, erupting with laughter, for he is faithful to his promise. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you that the story that you give us in scripture is the true story of the world, a story that has room and gathers in all of our sadness, and also a story that points us to the place where there is true joy. And we thank you that you show us that and you accomplish that for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us.